want to go ahead and just review where we were last week, and then uh, we'll start into tonight, and maybe we'll get through, and maybe we won't. We'll see. But uh, what we did was last week we went over the first four chapters of the book of Song of Solomon. We talked about how this book is uh, such a picture of our walk in the Lord. And, uh, you know, several years ago I would never have dreamt that I would stand and, and proclaim anything about this book because I thought it was a quirky, funny little book. Had some interesting little imagery I didn't want to touch and definitely didn't want to read in church and thought, you know, this is a little strange. And, um, and now it's one of the main messages that I preach, and I love it. In fact, it, it is probably more than any other book, it gives definition to my life uh, at multiple levels more than any other book in the Scripture. I continually uh, come back to the Song of Solomon, and I find it as the song of my life. And I, it, it gives my life definitions through so many different seasons. I see my journey, and that's our journey, beloved, together. We have a corporate uh, shared experience of the journey of the bride in Song of Songs. And so uh, while it applies to all of us in a corporate way, I want you to dial it in and take the truths and let them uh, be applicable to you in an individual way because it works just like that as well. And so this book is an allegory, and the main characters are the bridegroom who represents Jesus and us, who uh, represents, we're the maiden, and we, we start off as a maiden, we turn into a bride, and that, that maiden who turns into the bride, that represents uh, us. And so uh, I want to pick up where I left off last week, and, and, and I want to give a, a little bit of a review, and then we'll, we'll start in chapter 5. In chapter 1, we remember that she is facing spiritual crisis and burnout. She uh, recognizes, though that she's been allured and drawn away in intimacy and, and experienced his love, that she realizes that she goes through a season of sin and immaturity. And in that season, she says, I am dark before the Lord. I know I've got issues and wickedness and immaturities in my life. But it's right there in that season where she says, I am dark. She all understands that she is lovely to him. And that's the beginning understanding of knowing the love of God. And I want to say this really, really, really loud and real clear. That unless we comprehend this, that while we are dark and weak, and while that we manifest um, sin in our lives, that God still loves us completely, dramatically, and thoroughly. And that's the beginning, point one, understanding of love. Many people think that this, that if they sin, that God hates them. But if they do well, then God loves them. But it's just not true. It's not that way because God loved the world who is wicked, and he crushed his son for them. How much more you and I who have a yes in our heart toward Jesus? And I'm not talking about people who are rebellious, who, who maybe paint the name of Christ on their life, and they, they don't want the Lord. They don't want to serve the Lord. They don't want to know Jesus. I'm talking about people that have a genuine yes in their heart, but they fall in immaturity, and they fall into sin. That person can say with confidence, though I am dark, like Ben was saying, though I am dark, I am lovely to him. He considers me beautiful. And that's the point one beginning of understanding love. And that's where the maiden starts off in chapter one. Well, what does he do? He comes to her in that state of darkness and brokenness. And he begins to draw her away in intimacy. And he begins to tell her how he thinks about her and how he feels about her. And he relates to her. And he, he always says uh, two things whenever he speaks to her. In fact, throughout the whole book, he says one of two or both of these things. He says, you are beautiful and you I love. He says in all sorts of different ways. But whenever he speaks to her, he says, you you look good and I like you. And that's the way God relates to us. 
you look good and I like you. And so he begins to tell her the way that he feels about her. And it's the revelation of his emotions toward her that begin to bring her out of this spiritual crisis of manifesting you know, sin and immaturity and, and weakness. And so he uh, draws her into rest and he draws her into intimacy. And so in chapter 2, she experiences um, wonderful times of being allured into love. And she experiences his emotions And she says, sustain me in this place. Refresh me in this place. I don't ever want to leave this place. I am lovesick for you. And what's happened is this. He has drawn her in with the revelation of his emotions. And it's done what it's supposed to do in her heart. And she says, I don't want anything else. Because your love is better than wine. Your love is better than any other earthly thing. And this is God's desire and destiny for us. That he would take us to a place through the revelation of his love to us. He'd take us to a place where we just say, I am lovesick. I don't want anything else but him. And that, love, that lovesick heart is the heart that will, will persevere and pursue God even through challenges and trials. That lovesick heart is the desire that he's trying to bring the bride to. He wants her to live lovesick so she doesn't get easily deterred and she doesn't easily you know, choose other lovers. For the one that's lovesick for Jesus won't go down the path of other things. They'll stay with their gaze set on him, desirous of him. And so she says, I am lovesick, sustain me, refresh me. And it's right then that he shows up and he comes as a conquering king and he says, listen, I want you to come to the mountains with me. I want you to partner with me and subdue uh, principalities and nations and I want you to come in conquest. And the fears and the challenges in her heart, they come to the surface and she says, I can't. Oh, what a sad part of the story. He wants her to come partner, and she says, no, I've got gray areas. I've got issues. I have unresolved things. I've got dark areas, and I can't. She goes, you just go to the mountains. And she says, go to the mountain of Bether, which is the mountain of separation. So she says, I can't go with you. And then in chapter 3, what happens? She gets this season where he gently withdraws his presence from her. To, to, to sort of stroke that, that cord of love sickness in her heart, to cause her heart to long for him again. And she comes to the revelation of this, that it's better outside of the boat with Jesus than in the safety of the boat with the disciples. You know, it's better to be walking on the water with Jesus than in the supposed safety of whatever the comfort zone is. And so she says, oh, I, I, I don't ever want to do that again. And when she finds him, she says, I would not let him go. And that little season of divine discipline, it works what it's supposed to do in her, in her heart. And it's interesting because the Lord doesn't discipline her. He doesn't bring correction to her to reject her. He brings correction to her to allure her. And this is the way it works with us. God disciplines those whom he loves, and he disciplines us in order to bring us into fellowship, not to push us away from him. And so in chapter 4, because she turns and uh, and says, no, no, I'll never do that again. In chapter 4, we get this this, uh, expression from the heart of the bridegroom, and he just begins to tell her how beautiful she is and how much he desires her again. And he says this, you have ravished my heart. You have moved me. He goes, one glance and you move me. And that's the foundational understanding of the bridal paradigm. It's this, that God's heart is ravished over you. He is absolutely ravished and 
I mean completely desirous of you. And this is where we live. And that's the lens that we want to apply to all of our understanding of God, that he is a bridegroom God who is deeply burning and passionate love for us as people. And so as a result of that, she says, listen, come, O north winds, come, O south. Whatever it it takes to, to cause fragrance to come out of my life to please you, I want it to come. And the north winds represent the chilling winds of, of trial and challenges. And the south winds represent the warmth of blessing from the Lord. She goes, I don't care. Whatever it takes, let it blow on me that I can be pleasing to you. So there it is. That's the first four chapters of Song of Solomon in seven minutes. You just got them. Yay. So we pick it up in chapter five, verse two. And what happens in chapter five To me, this is the most dramatic part of the song. 5, verse 2. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Look at how much language he's using to draw her in. He goes, my head's covered with dew, my locks. With the drops of the night. What's happening here? She's again experiencing a night season. And this time, rather than her searching for him, like she did in chapter 3 on her bed, when he was out subduing nations and conquering mountains, this time he is speaking to her in the night and drawing her into the night. She hears his voice. She said, it's the voice of my beloved. And he begins to say things like, you are perfect. You are faithful. My love, my dove. And we found out last time that the, the, the picture of the dove is the one that's monogamous, the one that's faithful. Now she's not done anything yet. She's not gone on any conquest yet. She simply said yes. And this is the way that the Lord relates to us. Let this completely relate to you. When I'm talking about her, I'm talking about you. He says over you, he says, you are perfect. Before you've ever done anything, before you've ever lifted a finger, the yes in your heart, he goes, you're perfect. You are faithful. He goes, my dove, oh. And he beckons her, and where does he call her? Into the night. Into the night. It's a stunning thing. What's he doing? He's inviting her to know him as more than just the safe savior, more than just the heavenly bridegroom, more than just the good shepherd. He wants her to know another facet of who he is, and he wants her to experience him as the suffering servant. He says, I've been in the night. There's dew on my hair. I have lived in the night season. And I want you, my love, my dove, to come with me and experience it with me. And so she arises in verse 5. and (laughs) She arises because she's going to go with him in another level of intimacy But this is not what she thought. 
Verse 5 says, I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. Some believe it's this, that as he knocked and as his hand was on the door, that the liquid myrrh went through upon the other side. And so when she touched it, the myrrh got on her. Because <laughs> he showed up with the fragrance of death. Myrrh is the burial spice. It's also the, the wedding ointment. It's both realities. So she arises and she touches the door latch and it's got myrrh on it. She's going to experience him in a way she never dreamt. She said, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and he was gone. My heart leapt up when he spoke and I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. What we have here pictured is what the desert fathers, who are some, uh, a group of, of monks who would go out in the, around 1,000 uh, uh, A.D., they would find themselves out in the, the desert areas of Egypt seeking the Lord in the place of the wilderness because they wanted to know God intimately without any other distractions. And the desert fathers coined this phrase called the dark night of the soul. And so she has now been invited by the bridegroom to experience him in the place of the dark night. And the challenge of experiencing him in the place of the dark night is that he actually withdraws his presence again. She finds herself in the dark night. She heard his voice draw her into it, but once she gets into the night, she can't hear him and she can't see him. You know what I've come to find out? We don't really know the Lord unless we fellowship with him in the night. Unless we fellowship with him in the place of sufferings. And that's what he is calling her to do. He's calling her to experience him in the garden. When the sin of the world was put upon him and he felt separation between himself and his father for the first time. And so here's what happens. She goes out into the night, drawn by the bridegroom, and she cannot feel his presence. So many believers, when they get into a season, we call it the wilderness, we call it the dark night, but so many believers, when they come into a wilderness season where they don't sense the presence of the Lord, they immediately believe it's a Song of Solomon 3 where they're getting divine discipline and the Lord's withdrawing. But so often, it's Song of Solomon 5. And what the Lord does is he draws his presence away, not because you've done anything wrong, but, but, but because he wants to fellowship with you in a much deeper and intimate way than you've ever known him before. We love Philippians 3. We love to know him in the power of his resurrection. Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul the Apostle says, that I might know him, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. And most, most preaching we hear just puts a little dot, dot, dot right there. Because the next two phrases are almost unbearable. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 
We don't hear very many good messages out there about being conformed to the image of his death and fellowshipping with Jesus in his sufferings. And what we want to know is we only want to know the victorious Jesus risen from the dead, but we don't want to know the Jesus that was abandoned in the place of prayer in the garden. We don't want to know Jesus who turned and all the disciples had fleed and, and left him. And here's the thing, beloved. The Lord, because he loves us, because he wants friends, he will even give us the opportunity to know him in the place of pain because we get to actually fellowship with him in what he experienced. And when he experienced separation of intimacy with the eternal father, I don't think we've ever comprehended what that meant. Because he is God. He leaves the throne of God, puts on skin, but lives in intimacy until this moment when God puts the weight of the sin of humankind forever. All sin past, all sin future, puts it on the man Christ Jesus. And the Bible says he sweated drops of sweat like blood. Somebody say, well, was it blood or not? Not sure, but it was serious. There is a medical condition where you can actually sweat blood, and I believe that's what happened to him. And it was through that, that dark night in the garden where he was just looking for some friends that would walk an hour with him in that place of travail of soul that his friends fell asleep. And the presence of the Father began to wane. And he lived through a brutalized next 24 hours as they beat him and bludgeoned him. They ripped his beard from his face. He gave his back to those who lay the furrows through the stripe of the cat of nine tails. A whip with nine extensions with rock or glass. In the ends, they raked it across his back to the flesh hung. And he wasn't sensing the presence of the Father. Until finally he makes the statement on the cross, My God. Why have you forsaken me? See, he doesn't want that reality just to be a story that sort of gets our attention. He actually wants friends who get to know him even in that place. He wants to disclose himself fully to us. And so many believers, here's what happens. They come up to Song of Solomon 1, and they go, dark but lovely, oh, but he does love me. And chapter 2, he says, come away, and they go, oh, no, and the fear holds them back, but in 3, they get disciplined. They go, okay, whatever, I don't, I don't want to let you go. And in 4, he goes, I love you. And in 5, he goes, now, experience me and know me in a way you've never known me. And so many believers get to 5, and it's too much for the soul to bear. It's too heavy. And I know that Jesus is looking for friends. Ones that will walk an hour with him in the garden. Ones that will feel the affliction of, this, of the soul that he felt. And he will withdraw his presence from us, not because he's angry with us, 
not because we've even done anything wrong. In fact, many times when you're not feeling his presence, it's a good sign you're doing right. He's drawing you in to fellowship. He's drawing you in to intimacy. He wants you to know his heart in the most unique and intimate way. And she's in this place without hearing him and without feeling him. And she's feeling the pain of separation. She's not done anything to cause the separation. She's feeling the emptiness and the coldness of the night. You can't see clearly in the night. It's cold. It's damp. And in that place, what does she do? She does what she did before. She goes to find the watchman. Remember before in chapter 3, she went and found the watchman. She says, if you find him, tell me, where is he? Well, this time she goes to find the watchman. In verse 7. Oh, and she says, I'm calling him, but he's giving me no answer. You ever been there? You're praying, but it's like they're not, the prayers aren't hidden. And then she says, the watchmen who went about the city, they found me. But instead of them connecting her with him, they strike her. They struck me. They wounded me. Keepers of the walls, they took my veil from me. It's not enough that she's separated from him, but he gives her the blessedness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. He gives her the blessedness of being struck by the watchman. It's leadership. Leaders turn on her and persecute her and beat her in the dark night. She can't hear his voice. She can't see him. She's crying out. He's not answering. And she gets struck. So you thought... You got wounded, and the devil was behind it. But the Lord is the one that called you into the night. I, this is a word from the Lord for the offended church. You thought it was that wicked, mean pastor. You thought the devil was behind it. And the entire time, Jesus wanted you to know him in a whole nother way. He wanted you to experience him in the fellowship of his sufferings. What was the injustice of the very son of God when the religious leaders of his time told him, you're possessed with Satan? just going to say this, ma'am, they told you that you were Jezebel, and you thought it was the devil, and the Lord himself called you into fellowship in the night, and I promise you, it wasn't the devil at all, it was Jesus inviting you into fellowship, and here's the challenge, they strike her, 
But what's the outcome? They take her veil from her. Remember chapter 1, she says, why should I be as a veiled one? Why should I be as a veiled one who cannot see you with clarity? And it's through the dark night and the beating and the, and the mistreatment at the hands of the watchman that she loses her veil. The Lord uses it. The entire time he uses it to bring her into intimacy and clarity of revelation. Oh, my friend, <laughs> beloved, if we could get this, that that leader is not your problem. I guarantee you, it would change your life. In fact, you don't even have a problem. You've got an opportunity into intimacy. Jesus is drawing you to fellowship with him in suffering. And we protect, and we shield, and we guard. And we, you know, we're so self-absorbed. We go, no, you can't hurt me. That's just wrong of you. And the Lord goes, no, no, no. Stretch out your back. Just as I did. He goes, I want you to feel it. And I want you to fellowship with me in it. I want you to know my heart for you. As they're mistreating you, you'll know how I was mistreated for you. And it's in that place they take her veil. <laughs> and then she turns. She's beaten, bruised, bloodied. She can't feel him or see him. And she tells the daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, <laughs> verse 8, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm a love sick. Tell him I'm not offended with him. And oh, beloved, this is, this is where we are to go in that place. We've been mistreated. God wants to bring us to this place of being unoffended in love. Unoffended in love. Tell him, I love him if you find him. She knows he called her into the night. And instead of saying, I'm just mad at you, God, for what you've done to me, she says, no, no, if you see him, Tell him I'm in love with him. And I want him. My heart is not offended with him. And it's, it causes the daughters of Jerusalem to freak out. The daughters of Jerusalem represent the sort of the nominal believers. She goes to the nominal believers and says, hey, do you know where he's at? She's, going, she's so humbled at this point, she doesn't matter. Anybody can tell her. And then they turn and they say, what is he? What is he more than any other lover, fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another that you tell us this? What is he that you could get beaten and, and bloodied and bruised and walk around in the night and you're saying that you love him? What is he? And probably the greatest statement of praise in the Bible from that place of being beaten and mistreated. Verse 10, I just want to read it. She says, my beloved is white and ruddy. He's the chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters. 
washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His lips are dripping liquid myrrh, calling me into death. His hands are rod of gold, rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. The imagery, carved ivory, it's the, the back of Jesus plowed with the cat of nine tails. Sapphires representing the bruising, the beauty of the bruising of the Lord. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friends. And it's in that place of the dark night that the revelation comes in a much greater measure of the beauty of the Lord. This is what I want to tell you. If you will stay in there, when it's the dark night, when you don't feel his presence, if you will stay in there, when, when everything is raging around you, when the persecutors are, are lying about you, when the beatings are coming, if you'll stay in there, I promise you, your veils, they'll leave. And you'll see him as more beautiful than you've ever seen him before. You'll know him intimately in a, in a way you've never known him before. And the way he'll look to you from that place will be so stunning. He'll be so radiant, so glorious to behold. We all want to see Jesus as more beautiful than everything, more excellent, more, more glorious than all the other attractions of the world. I tell you, the path to comprehend him that way is through the dark night. Do you want to know him that way? It's through the dark night. Our desire for comfort leads us away from the dark night. But his desire for intimacy, it draws us into the dark night. So they answer in verse 1 of chapter 6, well, where is he? They start off saying, what is he? She explains it. They said, well, where is he? We want to seek him too. Verse 3, she says, I am his and he is mine. I am his and he is mine. Her whole picture of who he is and who she is to him has changed. Now she sees herself as one owned by him first. I am his. It's the dark night that took her to that revelation and then he comes. In verse four. You know, the whole of this life really is a dark night. The whole of this life really is a dark night. Because the way we see him now through a glass darkly, and then when we see him face to face, it's like the sun you know, shining, dawning on us, because his face is brighter than the sun. We see now darkly, but then face to face, there's a day that he's going to come. You might be experiencing a dark night season. He'll come. But I tell you this. There's an end. There's an end to the pain of the, 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 this life. Where we only get him through the glass darkly. The most revelatory prophet among us sees God only through a glass darkly. 
the most anointed worship leader spends hours in worship, their best day, through a glass darkly, dimly they see him. There's a day coming when we're going to see him. He's going to come. And when he comes, he'll say this, oh, my love, you're beautiful as Tirzah. You're lovely as Jerusalem. That's the northern capital of the northern kingdom and the capital of the southern kingdom because you're as beautiful as the capital cities because you're as awesome as a victorious army, an army with banners. Look at this, verse five. Turn your eyes away from me for they've overcome me. A billion demons cannot overcome Jesus but the glance of the bride who stays in love through the dark night, overcomes him. All the hordes of hell can all point their guns at Jesus, and it will not matter. It cannot overcome him. But you, with a yes in your heart, from the place of persecution, and with a frail yes in your heart, when you don't feel him, when you glance his direction, he goes, I can't take it. I can't take it. Turn your eyes. They've overcome me. Do we understand the ravished heart of this bridegroom, God? When you said yes to Jesus, did you have any comprehension of the way he felt about you? He goes, don't look at me. I, I can't handle it. So then he just begins to praise her devotion and and in verse 12, she makes a statement. She says, before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. What's she saying? She goes, all of a sudden, I realized I became mature when I wasn't watching. You don't know what the dark night is working for you. You don't know what it's producing in you. You have no comprehension of that season of challenge, what it's working in your heart. You don't understand it, and everything in you wants to quit. You don't feel him, you don't see him, you don't hear him. But you know what? If you'll stay in there, all of a sudden you'll find him coming to you in love. And when you take a look around, you'll find yourself, and you've entered into maturity. <laughs> you won't be the same. You'll fall in love with the people of God in a way you never have. And you'll find your heart growing into maturity. And that's what she says in verse 12 of chapter 6. <sighs> chapter 7. We end up with, in chapter 7, the first part of the chapter are the people of God praising her for her maturity in Christ. The end of chapter six, we find two camps, one that loves her and one that still doesn't like her. She's just come out of persecution, and then there's this one group that says, oh, Shulamite, you are really getting on with Jesus. You're doing well. And the other group goes, oh, what is she? You know what? The Lord will always do that to his friends. The Lord will always do that to his friends. I remember I was talking to a friend, and I said, hey, uh, you're, you're the football team in your city, you guys got a Christian coach. I said, good for you guys. He goes, I don't think so. He goes, I know what God does to his friends. God will always allow there to be persecutions to keep you in fellowship with his son in that place. Jesus pronounced a woe when everybody speaks well of you. He said, woe to you. 
When you're growing into maturity in Christ, there will be a camp that will not like you. That is God-ordained. It's to enable you to fellowship with him and to comprehend this thing called meekness. This value of the kingdom. So she's got the one group that doesn't like her. She's got the other group that does. The group that does like her, they say how, how wonderful her ministry and her maturity is. And, and while they're blessing her, the other group is cursing her. And then he shows up in verse 6 and he says, Oh, you're beautiful and I love you. <laughs> I love you. You look good and I like you. And he goes on and on about how wonderful she is, and he, he vindicates her. And then she says, let's go forth. I want to go with you into ministry. All right, then we get chapter 8, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up with this. In chapter 8, we see the, the maiden now, and she emerges with the bridegroom, and she's leaning on him. And those that are looking, they can't tell who she is. She's been transformed. She's gone through the divine discipline of chapter 3. She's gone through being allured in love. She's gone through the, the conquests on the mountains. She's experienced ministry in maturity to the people of God. She's experienced persecution. She's experienced the pain and fellowship of his sufferings in the dark night. And now... She's leaning. I want to tell you something. The bride that's mature, that mature bride is not going to come out strutting like a peacock. The mature bride is going to come out broken and leaning. Where you see the, the model of ministry and, and you see the one that's strutting with their chest out and and, and, and showing their strength and all that, that is not the leaning bride. I guarantee you, the mature bride will be leaning. It'd be like Paul the Apostle. He goes, I know, they say my physical appearance is, it's weak. He goes, but I glory in this. I glory in my weakness. He goes, I love the fact that I'm weak because I show up in weakness and when I do, he shows up in strength. That's maturity. <laughs> and so she shows up and she's leaning on his breast. And it says this, who is this? Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? They can't tell who she is. She's been so transformed. She looks so different. She looks like him. She's not strutting, she's leaning. Can I tell you something? He wants to take you from the place of standing on your own to leaning on him. He's gonna wound you with love so you can't stand anymore. And then he says this, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire. A most vehement flame. I like how the New American Standard says it. The very flame of God. 
Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. The fiery seal of love is where we're going. Our hearts completely sealed, burning in love and passion for our bridegroom, Jesus. The seal on the heart and the seal on the arm, those are emblems. It's talking about a, a, an arm a piece of jewelry and a, and a necklace that hangs on the heart. And it's so, it shows the complete ownership of the bridegroom God over her life. When we come up leaning in maturity, I tell you, that's when our hearts will be sealed completely with fiery love. And this reality of the love of God is so severe. He says, you could give all the wealth of your life, he goes, that would be despised for the precious possession of knowing the love of God. He goes, this thing, he goes, it's serious, it's more cruel than the grave and death. It's stronger than those realities. The very love of God. I'm convinced of this. There is one message that will pull the human heart out of every sin and into life, and it's that God loves you. He goes, set me upon your heart. Be sealed with fire and love. And then the book ends. And in verse 13, he says, you who sit in the gardens, my companions, are listening for your voice. He goes, let me hear it. He tells her, he goes, I want to hear the prophetic proclamations of a, of a mature bride proclaiming the gospel. I want to hear the intercessory prayers and the worship songs. I want to hear the voice of the mature bride releasing proclamations. He goes, all those around, all the companions want to hear your voice. The world is aching and longing for a mature bride sealed with love, leaning on the beloved. They, they want to hear the proclamation of that heart that knows love. And he goes, let me hear it let me hear your prayers let me hear your proclamations and then she answers with verse 14 in the book of song of solomon it ends the same way that the book of revelation ends she says hurry my beloved hurry be like a gazelle be like a young stag on the on the mountains of spices. She says, return, come back, and be with me, my beloved. Revelation 22, 17, the Bible says, the spirit and the bride say come. And that's where the book ends. This is our journey, guys. This is our journey, the fellowship with the heart of Jesus, the bridegroom. Not simply in intimacy, not simply in the power of his resurrection, but also even in the place of the fellowship of his sufferings even conformed to the image of his death. He's trying to bring us to maturity, and you know what? He loves us so much that he will not leave us in immaturity. As long as we say yes, he will take us through the beauty treatments, even if it's dripping liquid myrrh. He'll take us through it to bring us to maturity. That's the path that we're on. I love this book. I love this book. It is such a powerful commentary on the truth of the way that we live this life in Christ. Oh, I love it. I want to encourage you. If you've never spent a season in Song of Solomon, 
I mean, you, you just make it your hobby. It's just the greatest. Every line, all those lines, all of those imagery, all those uh, lines have, have dramatic imagery that impact our hearts, and they draw us into revelation of the knowledge of God. All right, let's stand. God, I pray the lens, the bridal paradigm, the lens of the bridal paradigm that it would come upon us that even as I read the menu of these thoughts, that it would gain entrance into our hearts. We would see you as the bridegroom God who jealously desires and longs for us in intimacy, the one who loves us without regard to our weakness. Even in our darkness, You love us and you relate to us as a God who's kind and gentle, always calling us into beauty, always reminding us the way you feel. Come, Holy Spirit, come.